0: And if the rest of you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I invite you please to join with me in prayer um, before we continue to look at this passage. Father, this is your word. And um, as I even right now have been listening to it, I I realize that that I think I only begin to see what this is pointing at, that there is a reality here that we only are beginning to understand as a church, as your people. And so I pray for us now um, that we might see beyond these words, to see the reality to which you are pointing, that we might come to know Jesus more deeply, to know the joy that you have for us in Christ. Would you please lead us to yourself through your word this morning? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I really want us to focus on this this one command that's at the very beginning. I think the command that really drives everything else that's going on in this passage. That is the command for us to rejoice in the Lord. Now, some of you, if you're around my age, might remember this. I think, came out in high school for me, uh, so it kind of dates me a little bit. Does anyone remember the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? Okay it's like super catchy like I I have to apologize because probably some of you now are going to have that song stuck in your head for the rest of the day and it's not just catchy it's it's obnoxious right I mean like if you're can you imagine if you're in a situation like you know it says like landlord says your rent is late you won't have to you might have to litigate can you imagine someone in this moment of anxiety what am I going to do say hey man don't worry be happy I mean this is not the kind of thing you want to hear it's not helpful and so it could seem to you when we're first hearing these words, rejoice in the Lord, that it's that same kind of don't worry, be happy, turn that frown upside down. But that's most decidedly not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not ever glib about rejoicing. He's never just kind of giving some pat answer to try to like, pretend that suffering isn't real. Paul knows more than we do, really. He knows how real suffering is, how hard life is in this world. And so these words that he is saying here come from a place of depth, a place of profound understanding. And here's really, there there are two truths that I think he is communicating to us through this command as he kind of allows it to unfold in the verses before us. And that is, first, that joy is real, and it's found in Jesus. And secondly, that the way to this joy involves a kind of death. Well, first, let's let's consider this idea of joy is real, and it is found in Jesus. You might wonder why I even emphasize that joy is real. But I want to suggest that that's actually an open question in our culture. Uh, I think I brought it up a few weeks ago there's this scene in a movie with Jack Nicholson where this neurotic guy he's he's in the the waiting room for the therapist and he just asks everyone what if this is as good as it gets And I want to say that's actually a question that I think is on the heart of many of us What if Shakespeare specifically Macbeth was right when he said that life is just a tale told by an idiot Filled with sound and fury, but signifying nothing. You know, what if life is just about being so busy and so entertained that we never actually have to think about it? That we never actually have to look and wonder where our life is going? What if there is no meaning? What if joy is not actually available to us. And see, God says in his word, no. That is not the way things are. There is a joy that is available to you in this world that is so deep and so profound that it cannot be described by words. And it's found in Jesus. So Peter, when he writes a suffering church, but a church who has come to see this exact reality, says that though you do not see him, you believe in Jesus and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Just, just hear those words. Inexpressible. They, they can't be described it goes beyond description. Glorious. It is beautiful. There is a joy that is available to you in this world. And it's found in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. When Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord, he says, There is joy. Take hold of it. Go to Jesus and take hold of that joy that is found in him. And of course, the question that we ask when we hear this command is how? What does it look like? How are we to rejoice in Jesus, to find that joy? And he he signals the answer part of the way through when he says, we are those who, who glory in Jesus, literally who boast in Christ, who exult in him. But then it becomes clearer by the time we get to verse 8 when he speaks of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And then a couple of verses later he says, I want to know him, meaning I want to know him more. Paul says, the way to find joy is through knowing Jesus. And to know Jesus, Paul is saying, Here's here's what this means. It means being connected to Jesus, sharing with him in such a way that you completely belong to him and all that is his belongs to you. I mean, to pull back for a second about why I go there for that definition, let's just think for a moment about what it means to know anyone. Like, you know, if you say, yeah, I know that person, what does that actually even mean? Uh, we know it's more than just facts and figures, right? If you know someone's height and weight and Myers-Briggs scores and, and tax return income, you don't yet know that person, right? Those are just facts. And it's not even like you know someone just by being near them. I mean, there are times that you can say that you've worked with someone for years, but when you speak to somebody, you say, you know what? I never really got to know that person. So it's not just even about meeting the person. So what does it mean to actually know someone? Well, it's a kind of connection, isn't it? Uh, To know someone is is to let them in and for them to let you in. So that that who they are, you now know them in a more experiential, experiential, personal way, right? There is a A sense of sharing, where where you are starting to feel who they are and see who they are and know who they are, and they are starting to know who you are, and there is this connection that is forged so that in some way there is almost kind of like an overlap of our souls. I know this is kind of getting touchy-feely, but I think you understand what I'm saying. So So once you know a person, there's kind of like a piece of them inside of you. You think of your life through their eyes a little bit. And, and what happens to them matters to you. That's what it means to know. It's, it's about connection. It's about sharing. And likewise, when Paul speaks of his desire to know Jesus, it's filled with connection language, that I might gain Jesus, that I might be found in Jesus, that I might be sharing in his sufferings. These are all languages about connection and that's what, Jesus, that's what Paul is talking about, about knowing Jesus. But I want to say it's not just like any other relationship that Paul is speaking of. He's not just saying, I want to know Jesus as my best friend. That's not the language Scripture uses, and that's not how Paul says He says, I want to experience the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What does it mean to know someone as Lord? Well, we already, I think, partly know the answer. We confess it once a month, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus. To know Jesus as Lord means to open yourself up to Jesus such that you are no longer your own, that you have surrendered yourself to him. You have surrendered control so that all that you are belongs to Jesus. but it's more than that. Because as we allow Jesus in, we come to realize that Jesus gives himself to us. That all that belongs to Jesus is now ours. And you know, we're taught that every week. When we have the Lord's Supper, what does Jesus say? What did he say to his disciples? What does he say to us? This is my body given for you. Every week we are reminded that Jesus gives himself to us so that all that is his, all that is his becomes ours. So Paul speaks of of having a righteousness that's found in Christ, not my own righteousness. Now the word righteousness is not just about being faultless, about checking off all the boxes. It's, It's ultimately a relational term about being in harmony with God And Paul says that now that I know Jesus and I am found in him, he shares his righteousness with me. His relationship that he has always enjoyed with the Father is now mine. So now I can know God without fear or without shame, knowing that I please God because Jesus shares his righteousness with me. And he also speaks about sharing in sufferings. You know that when you are really connected to someone, when they suffer, you suffer with them, right? And that's true at an even deeper level here with this, with this knowing of Christ. When we come to know Christ and all that is his becomes ours, his love becomes our love. His mission becomes our mission. His purpose becomes our purpose, which means we are willing to go with him to hard places to suffer, to love the world. We share in his sufferings. But Paul says more than that. He speaks mysteriously about sharing in an experience of God's resurrection power. That is, even when we are suffering, or perhaps especially when we are suffering, we experience the power of the Spirit that comes from Christ, that gives us hope instead of despair. That gives us love instead of bitterness. If you know Christ, that means you belong to him. And as you entrust yourself completely to him, you discover that all that is his becomes yours. His righteousness, his mission, his hope, his love, his glory is yours. This is what it means when he's talking about knowing Christ. It means to be so connected to Jesus that everything is shared. That there's no part of you that doesn't belong to him. And there is no part of him that doesn't belong to you. And Paul says that's, that's where joy is found. The reality of joy that you long for is found as you come to know Jesus. Because you are made for this. You were made for significance. You were made for meaning. You were made for glory and for beauty. You were made for love. And all of that is just another way of saying that you were made for God. You were made to know God. You were made to be connected to God, and that happens through Jesus. There is an infinite well of joy that is inexpressible, that is glorious, that is found in knowing Jesus. Do do you know what I am talking about here? I'm not saying, do you know this completely? It's interesting to me that if we went just to the next verse, we would see that Paul says, I don't completely get this yet. He says, not that I have attained this, but I press on. I know enough of the joy that I have in Jesus that I know that I want to keep going. I want to grow and mature. Have you tasted of the joy, the inexpressible joy that comes in knowing Jesus? whether you never have, or even if you, like me, have, but there's so much more that you know that you don't yet know. Paul doesn't just invite us to this. He also tells us, he, he, he says, to get here. And here's the second point that we have in our passage. The way to this inexpressible joy involves a kind of death, a kind of dying. So Jesus, many years before Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, he he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the kingdom of heaven is about joy. When someone finds it, really finds it, they are overflowing with joy and they give everything else up for it. The way to joy involves a kind of dying. He makes it even clearer a little bit later in his ministry where he tells his disciples, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You will find life. You will find joy, Jesus is saying, once you have lost your life. Now this is the language of paradox. It's, it's meant to be a riddle. It's meant to ask, make us go, what is he talking about? How can we die so that we can live? What does he mean? And as we study and as we come to understand the Bible, we realize that what Jesus is talking about is, is a way of living, a way of of being that is central to who we naturally are. And different words have been used to describe this way of being. The Bible sometimes speaks of the old man before we come to Christ, or the flesh. We can speak of self-centeredness. We can speak of pride. They're all describing the same way of being. This morning, I want to speak in terms of the independent self, because I think that's another way of saying the same thing. That is that each of us naturally has this instinct to go it alone when it comes to life. There's a part of us that wants to go it alone because we want control, and the only way that you really can have control is if you go it alone. If you go it alone when it comes to proving yourself, to showing your worth, I don't need anyone else, I can do this. To go it alone when it comes to deciding what we want To make decisions for our life. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I can go it alone. There is this independent self that is natural to who we are. It looks different for each one of us. And Jesus is saying the only way to find life is for that self to die. And Paul says the same thing here. And the way that he says it, the way that he invites us to joy through this kind of death is through through him telling his own story. Perhaps you noticed there's kind of this warm and fuzzy language that's at the very beginning watch out for those dogs, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. He's clearly concerned about a group of teachers. What is he talking about? There's a group of teachers who basically were, who were saying, hey, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, but, but really, that's just the ground floor of Christianity. To really be the people of God, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to observe all of the Jewish laws, that's where really growth, that's where meaning and purpose in the kingdom of God is, including circumcision. And as I am thinking about it this week, I think one analogy, and this probably will only work for a few of you, but hopefully it will still be helpful apart from that, is, is collectible card games. Now I realize I've just totally nerded myself in this moment. But some of you might know about collectible card games, like you know, Magic the Gathering is the most familiar of these, but there's a whole slew of them. Maybe your kids have gotten involved. And here's how they work. They're, you know, it's, it's kind of like a glorified game of war, where you've got two kids, each with a deck of cards, and they're playing off with each other. And to be able to do that, what you need first is a starter deck. So you can invest a few dollars, you get the starter deck, and the starter deck means that you have everything that you need to be able to play the game against someone else. But what they don't tell you is you will never win if that's all you have. That just gets you to the table. You need to invest 20 30 $100 so that your deck can have all of the coolest, best things to be able to beat the other guy, otherwise you'll never be anything in this game. These teachers were basically saying, Jesus, he's your starter deck. He gets you to the table. You can now play the game, but you're never going to be anything unless Unless you start adding to it, unless you start really focusing on these these Jewish laws, unless you're circumcised, then now you can compete with the big boys. And Paul is absolutely furious at this. I mean, he does not mince words, does he? Because he knows that what they're saying is basically, Jesus isn't the most important part. You're going to be the one who has to do it. It's ultimately about your independent self achieving through observing this law, and that is death to joy. And so Paul kind of gets in like this resume slam. I mean, he's like, basically, if you are wanting to make this a big deal, let me share a little bit about myself. Because if it's about our achievement as Jews, here's who I am. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, like, you know, all of the best Jews are. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I'm not just a Gentile who's converted and pretending to be a Jew. I'm the real thing. As to the law, a Pharisee, and no one keeps the law better than Pharisees. As to zeal, hey, I was so zealous, I went above and beyond, and I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I realize that probably doesn't have the weight to us that it would at that day, so I tried to figure out how, how if he were maybe saying the same thing today, how would he put it? And, and I think he would say something like, So I was summa cum laude graduating from Yale. I got my MBA at Stanford. A whole bunch of Fortune 500 uh, companies were offering me some of the top positions, but I didn't take that. Instead, I started my own business. A few years later, I was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, having the most successful IPO in history. That's me. Paul is saying, if you want to compete on the basis of individual achievement, of what you can do, I am going to beat you every day of the week and twice on Tuesdays. But let me tell you what I know that you don't yet know. I regret all of it. I mean, isn't that what he says? He says, it's all loss. I've lost everything. I've considered it lost. It's not just that it was not that great. He's saying it actually was against. It was, it was something that I regret now. It's, you know, it's like you can imagine, because he uses this language, whatever I considered gain, I now consider loss. It's like he has this spreadsheet, this Excel spreadsheet in front of him, and he has this whole list of, of profits, and he has the list of things, and now he has, he's deleted that word, and instead he has put the word debits. Because everything that he thought was a gain now is loss. Why? because he realizes that as long as he was indulging his independent self, as long as he was leaning on that every ounce of energy that he was using in those moments was pushing Jesus away. And so it wasn't worth it. And he goes further in verse 8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, And he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. In other words, he has not just died to his desire for achievement, although he has that. He's also died to being in control. He's let go. I mean, he he could have decided that he wanted to be married. He could have decided that he wanted security. He could have decided that he wanted comfort. But he said, I let go of control of all of these things. Jesus, you take me wherever you want me to go. And why? Why is it so important that he says that I have lost control, I have lost achievement? Why has he denied and let his independent self die? And the answer is that is the only way for him to experience joy. Because you cannot, you cannot hold on to your independence and know the joy that comes in Jesus. I mean, think about it. We know that's true. Because what do we say it is to know someone? It is to let someone in. To know Jesus is to share everything. And what is independence? It is making a wall around a part of our soul that we will let no one into. The two are fundamentally incompatible. Which is why Paul says, I look at it and it's all loss. It's all junk because it kept me from the joy of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And That's why Paul says, watch out, be aware, don't let this trap you. You know, I think many of, many of you right now, it's quite possible that you are not experiencing joy because there is something that you are holding on to that is keeping you from allowing Jesus in. I don't know what it is maybe maybe there's a part of you that just still has to prove yourself and you are anxious and you are pushing and pushing and pushing and you're not depending on Jesus or maybe there's a part of you that you are ashamed about but you don't want anyone to know even God you just have to carry it yourself or maybe there's a part of you that just wants control and there's something that you know that Jesus is calling you to do but you are too afraid to let it go there are ways that as we hold on to our independent self, we are pushing Jesus out. And Paul, when he's saying rejoice in the Lord, he invites us to open ourselves up and to let Jesus in. And even as we give ourselves to him, to experience what it means that all that belongs to Jesus is now ours some of you might be familiar uh, with a man by the name of Chuck Colson. He uh, was a political strategist for Richard Nixon and he had a resume that was incredibly impressive. By age 38, he already had his own law firm that was successful and he became, as I said, the chief political strategist for Richard Nixon, em- enabling him to uh, win the election in 1972. He uh, died just a few years ago, but before his death, a couple years before that, he had this interview with Slate Magazine. Um, and he says, I was the principal strategist behind the 1972 reelection campaign of Richard Nixon. And when it was all over, I should have been absolutely on top of the world. I'd succeeded. We won. It was an historic landslide. But instead, I found myself staring out of the office window thinking, so What? I was getting ready to go back to my law firm and I was going to make a fortune, literally a half million dollars a year, and I felt dead. Really dead. And he relays this conversation that he had with someone who had been a former client that he hadn't seen in years, who he noticed was different from the way he used to be. And he decided to just like, be forthright about it, and he said, Tom, what has happened to you? Have, have you changed in some way? And, and Tom became kind of awkward. He he looked away, Colson says, because this was actually the first time he had ever acknowledged it to anyone. He said, well, I've accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. And Colson said, I'm a New England guy. I had never heard anything like that. And I was feeling really awkward, so I just kind of stared at him strangely, and the conversation just kind of ended. But for the next two months, he couldn't let that idea out of his mind. And so he calls Tom up, and he says, "I, I want to talk with you about this. And when he does, when he meets with this guy, for whatever reason, this guy decided that he wanted to read a portion from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity about pride. And if you've ever read that, you'll know that it talks about how pride is kind of the root, the chief of sin, this, this fundamental need to prove yourself, to compete against other people. It's what, what drives so much of what we are. And C.S. Lewis says, as long as you are proud, it is impossible to know God. So at the end of that conversation, Colson said he wasn't ready to pray because Tom asked if he wanted to. So he got in the car and he said he couldn't, he, he made it maybe, maybe like a mile driving and then he had to pull over in the road, on the side of the road, and he said he was just crying for the next hour. Because he realized, he said, that that was talking about him. He had thought that he had been serving his country, but the whole time he'd been serving himself, he'd been holding on to his independence, and he realized it was a dead end. And so he says, at at that moment, he was was crying out to God. He says, I realized that that this was talking about me, and I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus. And he came into my life. And he says, I look back at that time, 35 years, and my life has not been the same since. And there is a joy that I now have that I never had. Do you understand what that's describing? I mean, we sang about it earlier. You now, in this new song, that third verse is, "We were fools in our rebellion, with our hunger strike of pride." I was so struck by that. When you hunger strike of pride, our pride is keeping us hungry, and yet we refuse to relinquish it. We were sick and growing closer to the death we should have died. Then he heard of our condition, and he called us by our names. And the God of glory took away our shame. Do you realize that when we're saying that that joy is available, it's not like God is trying to hide it. It's not like God is removing himself. Jesus came to us. He became one of us. He is offering himself to you. He wants you to experience this joy. And he is calling you by name. Relinquish your independent self. Relinquish your pride. Experience my righteousness. There is a joy that is real, and it's found in me. I'd like to give us some time, as we always do after spending time in God's Word, just to spend some time talking to God and reflecting if there are places that we should confess, areas that we need to open ourselves up to Christ that we have been holding on tightly to. I invite you to spend a couple minutes in, in silent confession and prayer, and then I will lead us in prayer as we conclude. Father, you know our pride. You know our sinful independence. You know our fear. And we confess it to you this morning. Father, I pray for us as a congregation right now, for for people who right now are longing for joy but are too afraid to let you into parts of their lives for all of us in different ways where that's true. Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to see what these words are talking about. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your power to open our hearts up to Jesus. I ask that, we, we ask that we would experience this inexpressible joy that you offer to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God says to us in Romans, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that is Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God.